A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. The Philosophy of Sex Welcome to The Philosophy of Sex, Long Play. I'm your host, Caroline Moreau-Hammond. This week, we're speaking with Lisa Wade from the first episode of season one, Are We Doing It Right? Putting Sex into Perspective. Professor and sociologist, Lisa Wade is an associate professor at Tulane University in New Orleans, where she teaches gender and sexuality studies. Before receiving her PhD in sociology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Lisa earned an MA in human sexuality from New York University and a Bachelor of Arts in philosophy from the University of California, Santa Barbara. Her recent book, American Hookup, is an open-minded, compassionate and unflinching account of the new culture of sex on American university campuses. In this episode, Lisa and I examine what hookup culture is, how it emerged, and the impact it's having on communities both within and outside of university campuses. We also discuss society's tendency to overemphasize gender differences and how this impacts our experience of our sexualities. Because we weren't able to include everything in episode one of The Philosophy of Sex, please enjoy our full interview. I am a first-generation college student, so I started college being very insecure about whether or not I was going to be able to complete college. So I needed to find something that gave me a lot of confidence in my academic abilities. And I took a sociology of sexualities class when I was a first-year college student. It was huge. There was like 400 students in this class. But I was so scared of failing out of college that I studied so hard for it that I scored in the top 20. And they took the top 20 and put you into an honors class. And from there, they plucked out a few people every year to be a grader for that first big class. Um, And by my senior year, I was head grader. So even though I majored in philosophy and I loved lots of other things, I got a lot of evidence that sexuality was something I could study and, and be knowledgeable about. So I went and got a master's degree in human sexuality from NYU. I worked for a while for the AIDS quilt, if, if, if this uh, art type of memorial for HIV back in the day, and then started teaching community college as a part-time person. And I realized I loved teaching sexuality. And so I decided to go ahead and get the PhD and I picked sociology. So here I am and I have a PhD in sociology and I'm teaching sexuality classes. And um, I was listening to my students talk about their experiences on campus. And I'm watching the pop culture conversation about this new thing called hookup culture. And I saw a real opportunity to do some research that could both help my students navigate what they were going through, contribute to the academic discourse, and maybe shape the popular conversation in a productive way. Uh, So I went ahead and wrote a book called American Hookup, uh, The New Culture of Sex on Campus. And that's kind of how I became I'm the person now to ask about hookup culture. <laughs> cool. So can you tell us a bit about hookup culture? Because it's something that we definitely have elements of in Australia, but it's not sort of a, 
I feel like a term you would use quite in the same way as in in the States, for example. So can you tell us a bit about what it is? Yeah. So hook hook up is just a new word for casual sexual activity. It really really is nothing new at all. It's something that humans have been doing probably since before we were humans. So there's certainly nothing new about that. And it's also nothing new about colleges that there would be casual sexual activity. That was true for the full extent of, of higher education in the United States. But hookup culture is a specific thing that is separate from just a place where hooking up might happen. And the way I define hookup culture is threefold. One is it's the idea that casual sexual activity is what you should be doing. It's not just something you could do. It feels more like an obligation than an option. And other kinds of ways entering sexual relationships start to seem off script or you're doing it wrong or it's acceptable but odd to do it that way. So that's one thing, it's this idea. It's also a really clear script such that the people that are involved can know how to hook up. They know who plays what roles, what activities are going to occur, in what order, how things are initiated, and how they're supposed to end. So there's, you know, we we often talk about casual sexual activity as spontaneous, but in this case, quite the opposite. (laughs) It's kind of a rigid script for how to do it. And then finally, it becomes institutionalized in some sort of place. This might be like um, a vaca- like a known sexy vacation resort, right? Or a particular kind of bar or, or famously, you know, the gayborhoods, those early places where gay men would come to live together were probably hookup cultures. And so hooking up actually becomes part of the rhythm and architecture of a space. Um, And on college campuses, you have all three of these things in the United States happening right now. Mm, Interesting. And do you have any sense of culturally where this emerged from? I mean, you talk about kind of gay cruising culture, for example, because obviously it wouldn't have just started in campuses. It would have been sort of brought in from somewhere else. So do you have a sense of where it's come from? I think if you look throughout history, you'll find hookup cultures in lots of different places among lots of different populations even arguably some um, retirement homes are hookup cultures. You tend to find it in places where there are a lot of sort of similar people coming together, might all be potential partners for one another. So that would be true in a retirement home. It might be true in a college. It might be true in a neighborhood. Um, And so you see all these folks coming together and they're in tight spaces. And there is a lifting of, a lifting of, of those restrictions uh, for for people in retirement homes, there's no more fear of pregnancy, right? you know? and mm. you know there's much less fear of uh, maybe maybe even identity or reputation at that point among um, gay men who are coming together to escape the stigma of being gay. There's this like desire to like really embrace uh, who they are with one another in a way of to affirm their identity. And in college, when it's a residential campus, it's a whole bunch of young people who are suddenly free from parental oversight, um, who have this opportunity to be sexual in a way that they perhaps didn't before. I think mm. that's kind of the institutional piece. But historically, I think it's also important to notice, I mean, this, there's a long history leading up to hookup culture, but p- perhaps one of the most important features is, you know, the feminists of the 1970s really wanted two things. They wanted women to have access to male-dominated spaces and masculine spheres of life and masculine personality characteristics and hobbies Mm. and those kinds of things because 
everything that was coded masculine was more valuable. It's where the esteem and the money was. So women wanted access to all of these things. They wanted to play sports and become surgeons and be ambitious. But they also wanted everyone to sit up and notice that the previously female spheres of life and the feminine personality traits and hobbies were also valuable. Mm. And we kind of, over the intervening decades in the U.S., got the first thing and not the second. So women get taught from the time they're children these days that it's okay to be girly, but it's kind of cooler, maybe more badass, maybe even the definition of liberation itself, to be more masculine, a little more masculine, to mix masculinity into your personality, to go into those masculine jobs, to take up those masculine hobbies. And so when they get to college these days, they simply apply that logic to sex. It's okay to be girly about sex if you are a girl, but it's kind Mm. of more badass and maybe even liberation itself to approach sex the way we think a stereotypical man might. Mm. And so when everyone on campus has embraced this idea or a large majority of students, then you get a very vibrant hookup culture. Yeah, that's interesting. It doesn't necessarily seem like something that's going to work out in anyone's favor, particularly. <laughs> so, do you believe that this is a broader cultural issue among young people, or do you think that it's quite specific to sort of institutional spaces? Is it the institutional spaces that create the opportunity for this, or sort of give birth to this, or is it something that exists within people and when they're in these sort of confined spaces? comes through? I think the institutionalization is a really important piece, but I do think that the idea and the script have leaked out way beyond, um, you know, the places we've been talking about. And so now I think that if you are trying to date outside of college in the U.S. um, as a 20-something, 30-something, et cetera, et cetera, at any age, really, There's kind of a hookup script and a dating script that are sitting side by side. And it's really hard sometimes to know which script the other person is using. And that other person or you could also always just flip that script. And so I think it's confusing to be outside of the institutional. I mean, the one thing about college campuses right now is it's clear what everyone is expected to be doing. Um, I think it's actually quite confusing these days to date because the expectations and the sort of rules of interaction that the hookup script require are in in many ways the exact opposite of the dating script, which is a more feminized script about seeking connection and looking for romance and using sex to to bond with someone in a long-term way. So for example, how quickly do you text back? You know, if it's the hookup script, maybe never. (laughs) but definitely not right away. If it's the dating script, you're trying to be polite and indicate to someone you like them. So the fact that those two scripts are out there simultaneously is very confusing. And I'll just say one more thing about this. Notice that we do use hookup app and dating app. We use those two phrases to mean the same thing all the time. And it just goes to show that we're really not quite sure what we're doing on these these (laughs) applications. I mean, how do you think this manifests in young people's relationship with emotional intimacy, right? Because I've heard you describe sort of the process of hooking up before and it 
it sounds like pretty primal the way you've, I've heard you describe it. <laughs> so do you have a sense of what the impact of, of that has been? Students largely think about relationship sex and hookup sex as being opposite things. Relationship sex is girlish. It's feminized. Um, it's in the context of love and care and connection. Hookup sex is boyish. It's masculinized. It's not in the context of care and connection. Because we think of gender as a binary thing, because we think of men and women as opposite sexes, we just sort of apply this gendered logic to relationship sex and hookup sex. And if this is true, if hookup sex is everything that relationship sex is not, mm. and vice versa, then it's wrong to care about your hookup partner. You're just doing it wrong to have positive feelings toward them. This goes beyond just feelings like love, but any sort of feeling of affection threatens this, this carving out of a space in which sex is quote unquote meaningless or emotionless. And so students have a really hard time even being friends with benefits because that friendliness threatens the sort of symbolic meaning of the kind of sex they're supposed to be having. And because in reality, a lot of hookups turn into a second hookup and then a third hookup and then a third and fifth and sixth, and then they end up in a relationship because that's actually a real, real thing that happens. Uh, students feel like they have to really perform. We're just doing this for sex. I don't mm -hmm. actually like you mm -hmm. um, in order to, to maintain that hookup relationship if it goes on for more or to maintain their own reputation as someone who's, you know, cool enough to pull this, pull this off. That's rough for a lot of students because it's one thing to have sex with someone that doesn't love you, but it's an entirely other thing to have sex with someone who may not even like you at all. Yeah. And not everybody's got the stomach for that. So I would say that most students on campus, and I'll just speak to students because I know them best, they don't love this. <laughs> like, it's not great. Um, some of them can stomach it better than others. A few of them think it's fantastic. It's the best thing that ever happened to them. About a third of students really want to be having sex, but just won't under these circumstances. They just opt out of hooking up and they don't know how to get sex any other way. And the majority, the plurality of students are really just sort of ambivalent about what they're experiencing. Men often find this frustrating, disappointing. Women sometimes find it infuriating, traumatic. They both tend to be disappointed. I don't know that we have any evidence that this causes long-term problems with intimacy. The psychologists I've spoken to, and this is more area of expertise, suggest that attachment traumas, you know, difficulty with attachment, that's stuff that happens to you when you're little. But by this time, um, people are more, psychologists, people are a bit more resilient. But I do believe that young people today are developing a comfort level with intimacy and the skills of building and maintaining intimacy later than people were maybe a generation ago, which isn't necessarily bad because the people a generation before that didn't do it until marriage. So that may be yeah. getting my generations off, but yeah. So I don't know that there's long-term, we're in a long-term crisis, but I do think there's a lot of immediate like frustration, disappointment, um, and, and even sometimes anger um, about what's going on. It's a condition we call pluralistic ignorance. Mm. Um, and then that's when the majority of a population misunderstands its own reality. 
like almost all college students, about three quarters would really be open to a monogamous romantic relationship if they had the opportunity to build one. And yet nobody mm-hmm. thinks anybody wants that. So You've spoken about sexual dimorphism before. Can you speak to how that potentially feeds into this? So sexual dimorphism is a phrase we use to describe the differences between the appearance and behaviors of males and females of a species. If we think about sexual dimorphism as on a spectrum, some animals have extreme sexual dimorphism and some have almost no sexual dimorphism. So there's certain kinds of birds, for example, that even well-trained ornithologists have a really difficult time telling the difference between a male and female. They just look and behave in almost identical ways. Maybe the pelvis of the female bird is shaped a little bit differently to allow those eggs to come through, but otherwise uh, they they just seem identical. They're the same. And then on the other spectrum, we might have something like the female anglerfish or the anglerfish, many of these anglerfish species, females can grow up to about three feet long and males just never grow bigger than, you know, um, a walnut <laughs> and they don't have a stomach. <laughs> they, they get born, they swim around till they find a female, they latch onto her with their mouths and then their face dissolves into her body. And then the rest of his entire body dissolves into her body until there's just a pair of testicles hanging right there off of her side and she keeps those and he's gone. That's pretty extreme sexual dimorphism. So thinking on that spectrum, are we more like those birds or are we more like the anglerfish? We're more like the birds. We're just not that sexually dimorphic of a species. So we're obsessed with our gender difference, but in the big scheme of things, it's not that impressive. And so everybody thinks that really, you know, guys are getting what they want in hookup culture and girls aren't. When I think what's more the case is that men and women overwhelmingly want the same thing But because of the way in which we gender hookup culture, because hookup culture occurs in a context of gender inequality, that it suits men somewhat better than it does women. And that's where we get the difference of men feeling frustrated and women getting mad. It goes beyond just hookup culture, right? Like that that tendency to obsess over the differences, which is, is why I think it's so interesting. If we're sort of suggesting that potentially this lack of developing closeness and intimacy throughout a college period isn't having sort of long-term detrimental impacts. Do you think it's something that needs to be shifted or is it okay that this is the case? What young people do sexually is always changing in history. It's always changing. I mean, when, when young people started going steady in the 1950s, you know, this was the, this was the first time that young people were like engaging in like non-marital monogamy. Um, And adults were like, this is so weird. Why would you do that? Why would you be monogamous before marriage? That makes no sense. And they grew up in the 1920s where you dated someone different every night of the week. And so they thought that sounded a lot more fun than this drudgery of what they called actually premarital monogamy. And so, you know, young people are always changing. Um, how they engage with one another sexually. I see nothing at all particularly troublesome about hookup culture, except for the fact that it occurs in a context that is sexist and racist and classist Mm. and ableist and, you know, you name it. I don't see anything wrong with hookup culture that's not wrong with America more broadly, and I, I would suspect Australia more broadly. 
the problem is that this particular way of being sexual gets uh, spoiled by all of these other factors. Yeah, no, I think that's usually the case, right? Like it's all of the stuff that sits behind it that's the problem, not the the thing being inherently wrong itself or inherently detrimental. So I want to just shift tack a little bit then and talk about some of the research you did into orgasm and clitoral knowledge. So can you tell us a bit about how you started researching that and what your first sort of project was that you worked on in that space? Yeah, so you're taking me back to the first few years of my PhD program, and I was TAing with some other TAs, a large sociology of sexualities class, and a co-author of mine, she was one of the TAs, and, you know, we're baby sociologists, <laughs> um, just getting started, and she's ranting about how she's absolutely convinced that men don't know anything about the clitoris. So we decide, well, let's find out if that's true. And we designed a survey uh, and the survey asked, um, I mean, the sort of heart of the survey was a test. We called it a clitoracy test, a test about the true false questions, you know, find it on a diagram, that kind of thing about um, clitoral knowledge. And then we also asked, where did you learn about the clitoris? So where, where are your sources of knowledge? And then we asked men and women, um, how often do you orgasm when you have sex with a partner? And we asked how often do they orgasm when they masturbate? <laughs> we, we coursed a bunch of professors teaching large classes to let us give these surveys to all of their students. And we collected, I think it was just under 700 um, responses from undergraduates at the University of Wisconsin. And we ran the numbers. And the first thing we found was that my, my colleague was wrong. Men didn't know less about the clitoris than women. Uh, in fact, they knew statistically exactly the same amount. Everyone scored about a D on the test. <laughs> that wasn't great, but certainly women didn't know more than men did. And when we asked where they were finding information about it, it looked like men were really trying to learn. So they were, they were seeking information about the clitoris. They really, they wanted to know. And, and women, for their part, this, the second least likely source of information about the clitoris for women after parents was their own bodies. So mm -hmm. women were almost ignoring the best source of information about the clitoris. I mean, you literally can't get away from it. It is on your body. <laughs> and then when we looked at rates of orgasm, we found that when women had sex with male partners, their level of clitoral knowledge had no relationship to whether or not they had orgasms. So even when they were very knowledgeable about the clitoris, even when they would routinely have orgasms during masturbation, something was stopping that information from influencing their partnered sexual activity with men. When they were masturbating, there was a perfect correlation. It's a beautiful, perfect correlation between knowledge and likelihood of, of orgasm. Uh, so knowledge mattered, but women were looking much for it. And the work men were doing to try, out, to try to figure it out somehow wasn't translating into orgasm for women when they were having sex with their partners, possibly because women weren't sharing what they knew about orgasm with their partners. So what did you pin that discrepancy down to? I mean, obviously, it's a lack of women sharing information with their partners, men not having 
tactile information to to work off. Is that what you would put it down to or would you put it down to more than just that? Well, we titled the paper, The Incidental Orgasm. And so we noted that when men and women have sex together in American culture, there's what's called a coital imperative. Like you either are having penis vagina sex or you're getting towards penis vagina sex as you become more sexually active with one another. And that people who are sexually active with one another who have gotten to the point of having penile vaginal sex are expected to keep doing that. So there's this imperative that we engage in coitus, which is penile vaginal intercourse, the coital imperative. And generally we de- we tend to culturally define the conclusion of penile vaginal intercourse as men's orgasm. So if, if a man doesn't orgasm when men and women have sex together, that's like a failed interaction. Like, oops, we did it wrong. We'll, we'll do better next time. But women's orgasm is really irrelevant to whether or not the sexual interaction was successful. It might be nice. It's cool. Like we like it, but it doesn't determine whether the, the event was successful or not. It doesn't end the sexual encounter. Can you imagine the woman has an orgasm? The man hasn't. And it's okay. We're going to roll over and go to sleep now. Um, it's just incidental. It's, it's, and so um, largely I would argue that if you look at the rate of orgasm in any cultural environment and between any kinds of people, so um, men having sex with men, women with women, or women with men, I think we should read any sort of discrepancy, any sort of orgasm gap as evidence of how much we value that person's pleasure in our society. Because we know that women who have sex with women have just as many orgasms as men that have sex with women. So women are great at giving orgasms. And men seem to give them more so to other men than they do to other women. In fact, in my book, I quote a guy who said this amazing thing. He just kind of, a light bulb went off and he was bisexual. And he said that when he has sex with women, he seeks his own orgasm. And when he has sex with men, he, he wants to give an orgasm. But even mm-hmm. in one person, this sort of discrepancy can be very present. Mm, I remember hearing that quote in a podcast you did with Jacqueline Friedman and it completely blew my mind. I was like, that's so, so interesting, but makes complete sense, right? Do you pin that down to just good old fashioned gender inequality or do you think there are other things driving that? There's there's another thing I think that's really important that sort of comes at this uh, orthogonally. And that is that if we look at the rate of orgasm, the orgasm gap between men and women across history. If you looked at married couples in the 1950s, men were having about three orgasms for every one orgasm women were having. If you look at college students in first time, which are most of them, you see men are having three orgasms for every one orgasm that women are having. So across history, we're seeing this same ratio over and over again showing up. But if you look at college students in relationship, that gap is shrinking. And that is the first population outside of people who are having same-sex experiences. It's the first time we've seen this among men with women and women with men, where the orgasm gap is really starting to, to, to close. So what we see is not across the board, men are uninterested in women's orgasms. And across the board, women don't feel entitled to them. We see specifically, is it in hookups? That's the case. But when students are in relationships, then they tend to, women start to feel more entitled to pleasure 
and men feel start to feel more like they want to give women pleasure. And when we ask students about this explicitly, they will say straightforwardly, oh, a relationship is a more equal environment. A relationship is a place where we're, remember, <laughs> relationship sex is the opposite of hookup sex. It's a place where we care about one another, where we desire mutuality, where it's cooperation instead of competition. And so the entire context of the sexual encounter is different. So men feel generally fully entitled to be dismissive, rude, uncaring when they're having sex with a woman that they're just hooking up with. But they feel quite differently. The same man will feel quite differently if it's a woman he's in a relationship with. And remember that many hookups, many, most relationships are starting as hookups. So it's the same girl. Mm. It's not even like a Madonna whore thing, you know, or a good girl, bad girl <laughs> thing. Um, it's the same girl. Uh, so it's really the frame of the sexual activity shifting. Mm. I mean, you wonder how that would play out in a relationship context, right? Like, especially if you're the woman involved, having to feel like you're now backtracking on your previous behavior and actually having to come to it, asking for pleasure later. Like I can imagine that would be a big strain for a lot of relationships to go through. I mean, obviously if the orgasm gap is, is closing, this is something that everyone is aware of. Do I think students know that if they get into a relationship? No, I don't think so. Um, I think most students experience the orgasm gap as natural. I think they, I don't think it really occurs to most of them outside of taking a class where it's sort of their attention is drawn to it. I think women are so used to not getting orgasms and there's still so many myths about how it's hard to give a woman an orgasm. The women just don't come as easily as men. Um, there's just so many myths about that, that I think until women get into a relationship where they feel comfortable enough and the guy is very interested, they it often just feels completely natural that they have a one to three ratio or something different. And then when they get into that relationship, they don't know that their relationship isn't unique and special. So I, I think most students would be pretty surprised to hear those statistics. Do you see any real differences for the LGBT Q plus community in terms of both hookup culture I mean, obviously with the orgasm gap you do, but is it is it different with hookup culture as well? Yeah, so on college campuses, when there's a critical mass of people who identify as queer or men seeking men and women seeking women, you do see alternative hookup cultures popping up. So there are sp sp more queer spaces where you can see those kinds of um, engagements. And, and men on campus, they were using Grindr long before uh, students were using Tinder. So gay men on campus um, finding other ways to find hookups and entering a different kind of hookup culture um, before students were using, or students, men seeking women and women, women seeking men were using apps. So we do see differences in how those cultures operate. In a generically queer context, what you have is a, essentially a support group overlapping a, a sexual culture. They are one in the same. And so we think that these groups tend to be a bit, they have hookup cultures that are a bit kinder, where people are somewhat more accountable to one another, where there may be more mutuality. And that certainly shows up in the orgasm data. This might be especially true amongst women seeking women, where hookups tend to evolve 
uh, a little bit more slowly. There's a there's more getting to know you before hookups start, and hookups tend to be a lot friendlier and maybe recurring. Uh, partly because a lot of women are also they have to kind of suss out whether or not other girls are into girls, so it takes a little bit more time. Whereas if you're in like a heteronormative hookup culture context, the assumption is the guys are into girls and vice versa. And then grinder is a whole, and then and then the whole cruising culture is a whole other thing, where it's like hookup culture on super steroids, and it's it's even more about just merely having sex and all of the premise, much of the premise otherwise is, is completely stripped away. There, there's definitely alternative hookup cultures and they do tend to vary quite a lot even within that community. The Philosophy of Sex is brought to you by Becoming. Becoming offers something quite different from your typical online sex store. We combat the frustration of trying to find a great sex toy by producing personalized recommendations. Kinda like a sex toy concierge or HelloFresh with dildos. We only stock the best of the best, so whether you're starting out or adding to your collection, take our quiz, tell us what gets you off, what you're curious about trying, and we'll deliver a personalized selection of toys to your door. Pleasure is for everyone, so visit becoming.me. Becoming spelt B-E-C-U-M-I-N-G. Back to the episode. So if you were to look at, and again, don't want to overemphasize difference here over similarity, but I'm curious with Grindr and sort of more traditional male gay hookup culture, it is slightly more indiscriminate and that appears to be having less of a detrimental effect on people. Would that negate the dimorphism argument where we are similar? That's a great question, but no, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, because we have gendered histories and our gendered histories have propelled us into gendered presence and gendered futures. So Mm -hmm. there's so much that explains why various queer cultures and hetero cultures have it evolved as they do. Uh, so I, I don't I don't think that we necessarily have to read those differences inevitable. Yeah. No, I think it's it's interesting because often you see people jump sort of to that argument that well, obviously when it's just men, they tend to behave in this way that is is more geared towards that indiscriminate way of being. But I think it's an interesting point that that's not because of inherent inbuilt differences. So think about how men who have felt same-sex desire have had to express their sexuality over the many generations. They were essentially forced to marry women and have sex with women to make children. And if they wanted to express or indulge their same-sex feelings, they had to do so under the cloak of darkness, in secrecy. They had to do it in, in bathrooms and in parks where no one would find out or know. So there's a whole history of casual sexual activity between men that is rooted not in biology, but in oppression. That's a really, really important point. And so do you you have a view about the best way to close the orgasm gap that you've sort of accumulated over your years of research? I mean, the orgasm gap is a measure of how much we value 
men versus women and in what contexts. And so until we value men and women equally in all contexts, we're not going to see that orgasm gap close. I wish I could say there was some simple fix or that there was something an individual could do to make sure it didn't affect their life, but that's just simply not the case. And if we, I also think that there's a risk in getting too calculational about it too, right? We also don't want to fixate on orgasm as the goal of all sexual activity. And if we don't have both have exactly the same number of orgasms all the time, then somehow this is a crisis, right? The, the truth is that like the orgasm gap will naturally disappear or, or reach some sort of natural plateau when there's nothing else influencing how often men and women have orgasms together. And probably every couple will be different. And some women will have more than their male partners and vice versa. And um, some times of their life will have more or less. Some parts of the trajectories of their relationships, there will be more or less. It just won't be about power anymore. So we'll see a natural distribution. One thing I've observed that I think is interesting is that a lot of the onus falls on women to kind of fix this problem, right? Which is really just re-perpetuating the social issues that created the problem that we're in in the first place. So what's your response to that? And is that something that you're observing as well? You know, well, think about that study I did when I was a baby sociologist. (laughs) Um, On the orgasm gap, we had women that had all this knowledge and women who were using that knowledge very effectively in masturbation. And still something stood in the way of them being able to use that knowledge with their male partners. So women can acquire all the knowledge and experience they want. But if we don't have partners who, you know, have the same goals as them, then it's going to be really challenging for any of that to translate into equality. You know, I often feel like conversations that we have around sex, both sort of personally, but also within more sort of wider public discourse, definitely air to the more trivial side. We love to talk about the scandalous parts of sex or the funny experiences that we had. But as soon as you delve into anything slightly more real, slightly more personal, with slightly more consequence, people get quite squeamish quite quickly. Do you have a sense of why this is the case? And I mean, that sounds like a pretty obvious question, but why that's the case and a sense of what we can do about it? Can I tell you a story? Please. (laughs) So I've been doing interviews with college students, Tulane students specifically, about sex and love and friendships during this pandemic. For context, Tulane is one of the few schools in America that has been open. We have all of our first first year and second year students living in residence halls on campus and Our juniors and seniors are primarily spread out in our neighborhoods and apartments living together, and we have classes in person, and they're eating in the cafeteria, and um, so we're we're doing it. So I've been interviewing them, and one guy I interviewed, he was um, a senior. He was a gay-identified man, nice-looking white man, and um, he told me about a hookup he had where he met the guy on Grindr. He shows up at his front door and the minute the door opens, he's like, I do not want to hook up with this person because he's wearing a Star Trek t-shirt or Star Wars, I don't remember. And he's like, oh, this is not what I was signing up for. And he still walks over the threshold. He goes in, 
because it would be weird not to, right? Sometimes it's just that simple. And so they follow the, the sort of app script, which is like, you know, the guy says, would you like something to drink, smoke? Okay, do you want to watch something on TV? So they put on a movie or TV show or something and about 15 minutes in, which is, this is very much the script, the guy starts kissing him. And my student who I've interviewed is like, oh, this is terrible, terrible kissing. I hate this very much. I don't like it. I don't want to do this. And he says, oh, you know, give me a minute. And so the TV goes back on. About 15 minutes later, they start kissing again. My student has no interest in hooking up with this guy. But what he decides to do at this point is to take control of the situation. He said, I identify as a power bottom. I know how to get a guy off and I'm just gonna get this guy off and it's not gonna be awkward or weird anymore because I know how to do, I'm good at this. And I'm gonna make this, I'm gonna resolve the awkwardness of the situation by having sex with someone I don't wanna have sex with. This is, you know, we're having a, an honest conversation, me and this guy. And I'm like, that's very strange. <laughs> the, the more awkward and uncomfortable you are with someone, the more likely you are to initiate a hookup. And he says, yeah, that's the case. So a few months later, he, he meets someone on an app, another gay guy who wants to meet him, but this one wants to be COVID safe. And so they sit outside in two chairs on the lawn and have a conversation. And my student had not had this kind of an app date before. He was not in the practice of sitting down and just talking to someone. Most college students aren't. But because they didn't um, have the opportunity to initiate sex and the conversation went nicely, he actually had a really nice time with this guy. And they do it again. And over time, because they actually, because COVID forced them into, into a situation where they bonded as human beings with one another, they actually end up as boyfriend and boyfriend. And the sex he has with this guy, my student tells me, it's the first time in his life he's ever had sex that was truly spontaneous, where you just kind of got together and like did whatever felt you felt like doing, as opposed to, I identify as a power bottom and I'm going to take control of the situation, right? Instead, he was, just identifying as someone in love with this other guy and someone who wanted to be with him and was open to whatever sexual behaviors came along in any given interaction. And so for the first time in his life, he was having this intimate, loving experience. So if you think about sex as a skill you can learn and, and, and have, if you think about your sexual experiences as a resume, like a list of things you've done, and can claim, you know, if we try to make sex something that we can ossify, concretize, control, then it actually does feel safer. It feels much less nerve wracking. And actually having sex that is genuinely spontaneous, where you are vulnerable is terrifying, especially if you've never done it before. So yeah, I think that a lot of young people's sexual experiences as they're coming up and not just college students, you know, they apply the same sort of logic that they've been taught to apply their whole lives. Like 
you know, think of, think about how they get into college, you know, build skills, get stuff on all the right things on your resume, you know, make sure you can check off all the boxes. So I think they're having a lot of sex that's more like that than they are this intimate, you know, vulnerable kind of sex that I think they still want, but for understandable reasons are really, it's just really hard to get. For me, something that keeps coming up in a lot of interviews that we're doing is this idea of care being really central to all of this, but something that's just fundamentally lacking in all aspects of it as it currently is structured. So I guess it's it's how do you implement care? <laughs> Can you implement care? Can you teach care to other people? It's not part of American culture to, we're such an individualistic society. We're so deeply, we can't even wear masks. I'm sure you've been watching us. We're an absolute disaster. Like we, you know, the whole masking thing is about we wear our masks to protect others. It has really messed with our brains over here in America. Like it just doesn't click for so many of us because we're so individualistic. Why would we do anything for someone else when we want to do something different? And I think that's, we're really paying a price in our sexualities for that reason. I guess I'll just add one more sort of thought experiment, um, just because I think it's something that fits really neatly into everything we've talked about. I've mentioned that there's nothing wrong with hookup culture that's not wrong with American culture. And that it's not the hooking up per se that is really causing, I think, the majority of the, the harm on college campuses. What would perhaps a hookup culture that didn't have all those problems look like? Maybe we'll just distill it to the problem of sexism. Sexism kind of comes in in two flavors. One is discrimination against women versus men. And the other is a disregard and disdain for femininity over masculinity. As a thought experiment, it's fun to think about what would a hookup culture look like if it was deeply feminine? If femininity is about, yeah, connection, care, mutuality, not, not controlling everything or dominating, but instead entering into sexual activities in a way that is open and about discovery. We could imagine a hookup culture that was deeply feminine so that the sex wasn't necessarily meaningful in any sort of like, it means we're boyfriend and girlfriend now because we're having it. But however long those two people were together, however many times, one, two, three, or whatever, in that moment when they're having their hookups, they are embracing those feminine values and having sex that looks very feminine. That's a possible, that's a possible, you know, alternative universe we could be in. And I think that helps us open our minds to realize that it's not that hooking up is inherently problematic or going to inherently be harmful. It's this other stuff that is really getting in the way of allowing it to be a safer place for more people. A big thank you for listening to The Philosophy of Sex and a big thank you to my guest, Lisa Wade. You can find us on Instagram at becoming.me and visit our site for tailored sex toys and personalised packs delivered to your door. Feel free to like or subscribe to the podcast. I'm Caroline Moreau-Hammond. Thanks to Zoltan Fitcho, who edited and wrote the music.